is episode 144 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Multi-scale map of stem cell state in pancreatic adenocarcinoma, Dr. Tanishta Rea. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. All right, listeners, we have Big news, the Stem Cell Podcast is headed to the 2019 ISSCR annual meeting in Los Angeles at the end of this month. I'll be conducting interviews right from the meeting, and I want to talk to you to find out how you can be on the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at, at Stem Cell Podcast, where we'll be updating our location throughout the meeting and giving you a heads up on some of the questions that we want answered. We'll also have some cool swag to hand out, but we might make you work for it. And we'll be announcing opportunities to enter draws for some pretty sweet prizes. We hope to see you there, guys. Be sure to look in on that at, at Stem Cell Podcast. Moving on, today we have Dr. Tanish Rea from the University of California, San Diego, on the podcast to talk about her research on the signaling pathways that regulate the choice between stem cell self-renewal and commitment and how those signals are impaired and dysregulated in cancer, specifically pancreatic cancer, We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, this week, we'd like to remind our listeners about Cancer Stem Cell News, one of stem cells' free weekly scientific newsletters. Cancer Stem Cell News summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in cancer stem cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. Save time and keep current with Cancer Stem Cell News. Subscribe for free at Cancer Stem Cell News. Dot com. We're on to the roundup now. You know, unfortunately, I have to say we've been waiting for the other shoe to drop on this. You guys have probably heard by now. This is news follow-up of this big, you know, probably story of the year with the CCR5 Delta 32 CRISPR augmentation of twins in China. This is John K. Hay, remember? end of the year 2018 he announced this pivotal work which was way premature everyone came down on him because of just what we're about to talk about here truly unethical in his efforts you know the whole idea was that you would get rid of this ccr5 or at least get rid of the epitope that hiv uses to enter the t-cell right and of course that makes sense um, but there's plenty of other ways to go about that, right? So no need to do any kind of genetic augmentation. But of course, John K. Hay, he was really um, ahead of the curve to his own detriment, to the detriment of science, I think, because, you know, despite the protection that this Delta 32 mutation provides again H against HIV, and also there's other pathogens that it's thought to provide protection against, such as smallpox, also flavivirus, it also, though, unfortunately, appears to reduce the protection against certain other infectious diseases, namely influenza. All right, so there have been previous reports in smaller data sets showing that individuals with, that are homozygote for this Delta 32 genotype, they have increased mortality when inflicted with, uh, infected with influenza. And they're also four times more likely to develop certain infectious diseases. Um, so... Zinzu uh, Wei and Rasmus Nielsen, who are at uh, UC Berkeley, they wanted to solidify this small data set by investigating a hypothesis using um, combining the genotype and death register information from 409 
1,693 individuals in the uh, UK Biobank of British Ancestry. And this is uh, uniquely uh, useful, this registry, because in the British population, this Delta 32 uh, allele has a frequency of 11.5%, okay? So when you think of 11% and four, over 400,000 individuals, that adds up to thousands of individuals who are homozygous for this Delta 32 allele. So they have a rich data set to draw from what they find, sadly, um, looking at the survival rate uh, for, per year for each of the three genotypes. So taking wild type or heterozygote Delta 32 or homozygote 32 and looking at the the um, likelihood of death from the age of 41 to 78, they find that the homozygote uh, genotype has approximately 20% higher aggregated death rate before the age of 76 than either the heterozygote or the wild type. So that's they're 20% less likely to reach the age of 76. All right? So, you know, I think this is pretty clear it, it, you know i don't know that it's clear necessarily that ironclad that the homozygotes here are going to have a shorter lifespan but i think it's clear here that the unintended consequences of engineering the genome at the germline need to be recognized and we need to take great care at the very least we need to be performing this type of procedure only in patients for whom there is no alternative and these poor twins in china don't represent that and God willing, they're not going to have adverse effects on their own lifespan and quality of life. John K. Hey, you jumped the gun, my man. Oh, boy. Well, I guess we were waiting for that one, and now it's come. We can hope to move on in a constructive way. Moving on in the roundup here, we're talking about these expanded potential pluripotent stem cells. It's been a while now. We talked about how there's like the kind of naive pluripotent stem cells that arise from a blastocyst, and then there's the primed, and the, how the human, classically derived human, they were representing a primed, whereas the classically derived mouse was representing a naive. And since that has been you know, discovered, there's been derivation of both types in both the mouse and the human. But um, it's been challenging to translate these studies from the mouse and human and establish these naive or even just gen generic ES cells. It's, no one really talks about it, but we don't have pluripotent stem cells from all species. Um, and it's been a challenge because, you know, the culture conditions vary. There's slight nuances between mouse and human, major nuances between mouse and human, and also similarly probably nuances across other mammalian species, and specifically where it'd be useful to get pluripotent stem cells in the pig, right? We talked about it last week, how they're looking at pig hearts, they're using pig hearts as a vehicle, as a model of myocardial infarction and therapeutic avenues towards addressing it because the pig heart looks very much like the human heart. Even considering it for transplants, the pig shares a lot of genetic, anatomical, physiological similarities with humans. Um, it's a great model for human disease, uh, also for like cell therapies if we want to use it as a vector. Uh, as we talked about last week, and also, of course, like we talked about last week, it's even a donor for the porcine xenografts, right? Um, you know, humans, we might think of the humans as taking hum pig tissues, putting it in humans, right? Um, so there's a lot of reasons to get some pig pluripotent stem cells, but bona fide porcine 
embryonic stem cells even have not been established. Uh, so in steps uh, Pentalu and also Heiner Niemann. So Heiner Niemann's from Hanover, Germany. Pentalu is from University of Hong Kong, also does some work in Cambridge. So Pentalu, his group recently demonstrated that you could get these expanded potential stem cells um, from the mouse that had a broad propensity to make extra embryonic and embryonic uh, lineages, as well as uh, primordial germ cells, right? So this was kind of be like the Mac daddy, you know, primitive, you know, naive, it could make everything. Great cell, right? So uh, the idea is, is how, how can we get this same cell in the poor side? How can we even get ES cells? Little is known about what kind of signaling goes on in the pig during pre-implantation embryo development. So they were kind of in space about this, Pentau and Heiner. But uh, they used a chemical screen. That was their approach. They said, let's throw a chemical screen at this thing and find conditions where you know, we can optimize derivation of porcine em embryonic uh, stem cells or pluripotent stem cells. And they did it. They optimized with this screen. I'm not going to go into detail. They threw a bunch of chemicals. They found the optimal recipe and were able to generate cells from the pig which express key pluripotency genes. They're genetically stable, so no aneuploidy. You could edit the genome there with the CRISPR, like you know everybody loves to do nowadays. They also differentiate into all three germ layers in chimeras. So that's I think an advance. You know we're at the point where we're doing pig chimeras. I remember we talked to Junyu way back in the day where he was putting human ES cells into pig embryos. You guys should check out that episode. Boggle the mind. But here we're talking about pig ES into embryo chimeras, which is a very strong demonstration of, you know, the gold standard for pluripotency and also the uh, somatic cells. You could get somatic cells uh, or induce pluripotent stem cells uh, that could, from human, if you put them in the same conditions, they could, they could be uh, shifted to this enhanced potential, expanded potential stem cells. Okay, so this is showing not only in the, in the pig system, but then if you translate those same culture conditions to the human cells, either directly reprogrammed or IPS or ES, you get the same condition. And these cells would um, generate trophoblast-like stem cells. Okay, uh, so that's another big thing because previously embryonic stem cells were not able to generate that lineage. So it's, it's an important demonstration not only of culture conditions that can make these cells that should be very useful, but it also kind of draws a line, I think, in terms of mechanism and insight. I think it shows that you can kind of start a priori in the pig system and empirically define conditions that will be amenable to a pluripotent stem cell or an expanded pluripotent stem cell. And then if you overlay those conditions on the human system, then the human cells will behave similarly, which I think is another piece of evidence of how close the human and pig system is and may speak to not only new opportunities in the human system using this recipe to make these expanded cells, but also speaks to the fact that very soon we're going to be able to get a lot of pig-in-pig uh, kind of cell-based models here that will give us great insight into regenerative approaches, you know? Mouse and mouse doesn't, it's not, you know, mouse is mouse. Pig is so close to human, 
We don't have to immunosuppress. I think this could be a big deal for all kinds of therapeutic approaches moving forward. All right, next, we're moving into the single-cell seek portion of the program. You know, not even halfway through when we start with the single-cell seek. Bear with me. It is du jour, and it's not for no reason. So right now we're going to talk about the heart. All right, but we're not talking about the mammalian heart. We'll talk about the mammalian heart by way of background, okay? The mammalian heart, it's a lot of different cells, of course. The cardiomyocytes, that's the engine, right? The muscle, but there's also the endothelial, the endocardial cells, which are the big vessel lining cells, and then fibroblasts, of course, are the filler, the smooth muscle cells that are also important. Um, and despite all these myriad cell types in the heart, and that's not all of them, they all share a cardiac identity. At the floor, they're all cardiac, right? And this is like at the molecular level. The progenitors are first, they first have this cardiac identity instilled in them early on during embryogenesis before they generate all the derivatives, you know, all the fibroblasts and cardiomyocytes. And this is well known. The mammalian heart progenitors, they all, um, or all the mammalian heart cells arise from this MESP1 mesodermal progenitor that gives rise to all the stuff in the heart. But it's not that simple, right? There's also distinct compartments in the heart that come from first d distinct pools of progenitors. And, you know, classically, this is recognized in the context of the first and second heart fields, right, which give rise to very distinct populations of cells. And uniquely, the second heart field, it also contributes not only to a lot of the cells in the heart, many, most of the cells in the heart, but it also generates a lot of cells in the branchiomeric head muscles, okay, which is kind of out of left field. You have these kind of the, the muscles in the head that are, have a, in the, you know, pharyngeal muscles that have the same origin as the heart. What? So, like, this is an open question. Forget about the why, but the complexity and the, the diversity of cell types that these um, progenitors contribute to it makes it difficult. Mechanisms underlying that early heart versus pharyngeal branchiomeric muscle fate choice, it's hard to understand because, frankly, vertebrate embryos are just too complex. There's too much going on, and you can't see into them, right? Enter Siona. Whoever heard of Siona? Well, if you study the heart, you should have. You can't sleep on Siona. It's like a much simpler model of of cardiac development because it's got a, a much more basic complement of cardiac genes even than zebrafish, all right? And it's also, you know, pond water. You can see right through it so you can see these things happen and deconstruct them. And Siona has these invariant cell divisions, so very consistent, same pattern every time that produces distinct first and second heart lineages as well as the pharyngeal muscle precursors. Boom! You've got everything you need, all from these defined multipotent cardiopharyngeal progenitors, right? So what they do, Rahul, and Sati Rahul Satija and Lionel Christian, who were at NYU, they went into it with some single-cell seek of Siona. Who would have thought? I never thought I'd live to see the day they were doing single-cell seek in Siona. Now I can die. They did it. Single-cell seek to reconstruct the developmental trajectories forming the first and second heart lineages, as well as the pharyngeal muscle precursors, and they show that this FGF MAP kinase signaling, it maintains multipotency and promotes the pharyngeal muscle fate 
right? Whereas when you shut down that signaling, FGF map kinase signaling, it permits per a deployment of the pancardiac program. So you stop FGF map kinase, enter pancardiac program to define heart identity, and then in the second heart lineage, you get TBX1 slash 10 and DACH pathway that actively suppress the first heart lineage program. So they put a, you know, choke that out and let the second heart lineage come into play. All right, so this, you know, it's a, it's a, and those cells give rise to all the diversity of the heart and all those beating cells. So, I mean, yeah, this is Siona. We're not trying to cure heart disease in Siona. I don't even know if they get it. Probably don't. They probably don't get it. They don't care about it. They're looking at us like, why are you sweating heart disease in us? But I'll tell you why. Because this not only provides a nice model that's tractable and amenable to study, but it shows how conserved the, this cardiopharyngeal network shows that there's deep, deep evolutionary origins of this in chordates that are conserved from Siona right up to us, the humans, and beyond. So it's a basic study in nature cell biology, but we got to mix that in every now and again, you know? you got to bring some Siona into the mix just so you guys don't think we just favor all the mammals. We're equal opportunity amongst all the chordates people, so you better just, you know, recognize that at the outset. We're moving on into an organoid story. Not only organoid, but a single cell seek in an organoid story. All right, one plus one equals 10. This is a story out of Paola Arlotta at Harvard University. And this is really, you know, nuts and bolts, P, B, and J. This is like the, what we need in the basic sciences just to make sure that the next lab can do the same as this lab, right? You know, in vivo, this is not a problem. I just talked about Siona, invariant. The heart looks like the heart every single time, barring a few anomalies, right? And even in mammals, which are a big mess, every single time in vivo, these billions and billions of cells are coordinated in this complex spatiotemporal hierarchy. It's a big, to look at it, close up, chaos. But every single time you get ordered and functional organs, how does that work? totally invariant it's unclear how that works you know we just chalk it up to god or we chalk it up to mother nature or something we just you know it's not i can't get it i don't know i don't know but you know when it comes to in vitro the onus is on us to try and endow our cell cultures with the same reproducibility but we can't i mean let's be frank we can't do it there are few studies that even have made the attempt okay the attempt to like create a reproducible organoid, or even to quantify what one organoid looks like to the next. I'll say there's a study we just talked about uh, a little while back from Lorenz Studer about when he did that little sonic hedgehog. He planted the little source there and the little bead, and that created the dorsoventral. I mean, yeah, that was creating order fine. And actually, I'll, I'm going to tell you, Lorenz had another story this week in Cell Stem Cell about starving stem cells of lipids and making them primed, but I'm so sick of reporting on, I wouldn't say I'm sick, I love Lorenz, but I'm fatigued, Lorenz. You need to rest in between stories. So we're not gonna talk about that. I was gonna talk about that. Instead, we talked about porcine ES cells. Let's get back to the brain. Paula Arlotta, okay? Besides Lorenz showing that dorsoventral axis in the order, there's few groups that have showed a kind of reproducible organoid. They haven't even made the attempt, right? So what do they do in the Arlotta? They say, if no one's done it, let's do it. And they go comprehensively, systematically. They started with four distinct protocols for making 3D brain organoids and or spheroids. One was a self-patterned whole brain organoids. 
Second was the patterned dorsal forebrain organoids. Third was patterned dorsal spheroids. And fourth was patterned ventral spheroids, okay? They looked at all these adaptive protocol, like spinner, flask, bioreactors, top of the line as they are want to do at Harvard. And they ultimately defined these dorsal patterned organoid model as the best. They showed the most desirable you know, features in culture, which is large size, consistent overall shape. And using that system, they reliably generate a rich diversity of cell types appropriate to the human cerebral cortex. All right? And here's where they got Harvard on it. They said, all right, is one just like the other? So they did single-cell RNA-seq on 166,242 cells. That's very impressive. It's a big number. So they did single-cell seq on a lot of cells. And here's the key. 21 individual organoids contributed to all those 100-plus thousand cells, right? So they were looking across 21 organoids, and they found there's 95% of the organoids generate a virtually indistinguishable compendium of cell types. All right, even to organoids derived from different stem cell lines showed consistent reprodu reproducibility and comparative were comparable to those 21. So, I mean, this is, I think, a, a landmark study because contrary to my expectations, I think the expectations of most, this showed that reproducible development of the complex cellular diversity of the central nervous system doesn't have to happen in vivo, all right? And I don't know that I would, I would say that that's necessarily true. I mean, we're talking about relatively simple and early stage structures here. But I think it's a boon for anybody who's like, well, we're never going to be able to make XYZ organ just because the architecture is too complex. As it turns out, if you can seed, if you can create a nidus, a little crystal in the mix, it'll take care of itself, you know? There's a kind of manifest destiny in these organoids that... They want to, to, to reach this functional state, it seems. There's a kind of internal impetus drive them toward a, 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 their native uh, structure and function, although it's probably more complex than I make it sound. Kudos to you, Paula Arlotta, and your group at Harvard making organoids, doing single-cell seek. I expect nothing less. Last story. This is a nod to our guest, Tanishta, who is a huge hitter in the field of pancreatic cancer, even though she's relatively new to the field. Wasn't born in the field, although I would say she grew up quite a lot in the field. This is a story out of David Ting's lab, who uh, has been well-established in the field. He's at Mass Gen. So um, this is about uh, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. Oh, the worst. We hate that one because of uh, my boy, Alex Trebek. I mean, we all love him. He's so smart. And he, uh, unfortunately, is afflicted with pancreatic cancer, although recently I heard he said he's in near remission, although we'll have to wait and see how that turns out. I'm optimistic, and probably no small part due to some of this cutting-edge research from Tanishta and Ting. We're going to uh, tell you a little bit more about this, and then we're going to get into Tanishta. This story here is uh, looking at the, the stromal microenvironment, okay? So when you look at pancreatic cancer, it's not just the tumor, right? There's a complex ecosystem there with immune cells, there's endothelial vascular cells, and there's a cancer-associated fibroblasts, okay? And these cancer-associated fibroblasts are the major component of the stromal niche that uh, modulates tumor growth and also kind of mediates the invasive behavior, the boundary, right? So there's a lot of interaction, and it's very nuanced and, and little understood, the interaction between the stroma 
and the actual tumor cells, but it's thought to contribute to the advance of the tumor, right? And previously, the TIN group, they'd shown that there's a distinct subpopulation uh, in, the in the pancreatic tumor that's enriched for either epithelial to mesenchymal transition, which is kind of the metastatic property, or the proliferative, which is kind of like, you know, the cancer stem cell or, you know, the cancer volume producer feature. So there's a subpopulation that's enriched for these two bad qualities. Um, and there's a, if you look at the markers of these uh, different, these specific cells, that these markers are enriched in a subpopulation of cells that are at the tumor stromal interface, right? So that suggests, of course, that there's, a, there's something going on in that environment at the interface of the stroma and the tumor proper that is contributing to the advance of the tumor, right? So Ting and also Martin Aryi, who, who, who you know, jumped in on this as well, uh, who's also at MassGen, they did single-cell seek because you have to do single cell seek. They also did some proteomic technology that I thought was actually really cool. And they did this like mass, um, this high content digital imaging of RNA and C2, which I thought was pretty dope. Um, so what they, what they started with was a single cell seek to try and dissect the role of these, the stroma, specifically these, these cancer associated fibroblasts to try and see what their role is in, the, in, in governing the pancreatic um, ductal adenocarcinoma heterogeneity and identify that there's a population shift. So by doing single cell seq, they show there's a population shift toward the invasive EMT, that epithelial mesenchymal transition type phenotype, as well as the proliferative bad guy phenotype. And that both of that, those transitions within the cell population were linked to MAP kinase and STAT3 signaling. Okay, so this is what's so great about single cell seq is that you can say this cell is the bad guy and what's going on in that cell within a whole population. So that's what they did, and they found that they linked these signaling events to these bad guy phenotypes, and they also took it to another level by doing this, like I said, this high-content digital imaging where they um, looked at 319,626. Take that, okay, Paula Arlotta, with your 166,000. They doubled you although there was, this was digital imaging, and they pretty much looked at all the tumor glands and identified them cell by cell based on the abundance of these, like, these transcripts to try and like, classify all the tumor glands. It was a huge data set, but at the end of it, they linked these, the tumor glands and the specific, or specific tumor gland phenotype, they linked that to the abundance of the stroma and clinical outcomes. So this, using this high-end um, technology with the digital imaging and the single-cell seek, what they've done is they've essentially shown that the, the stroma has a major role in shaping the architecture of the tumor uh, and that the altering the pattern of the tumor glands is a, a major mediator of that in the advance of pancreatic cancer. So, you know, I, I don't know. We're looking up. Alex Trebek, you know, we need him. We need him. We need him. What is pancreatic cancer? The answer is the disease that used to be a killer and is now solved. Ha, put me on jeopardy. All right, guys, that's the roundup.
We're going to get to the interview in just a second. But first, guys, are you interested in learning more about differentiating pluripotent stem cells to pancreatic progenitors? After this interview with Tanishta, I think you will be. And if so, you should listen to doctors Ray Dunn and Jamie Trott, who are discussing the differentiation of pluripotent stem cells to insulin-producing islet-like cells in their webinar, Understanding Pancreatic Development and Diabetes Using Patient-Specific IPS Cells. During the talk, they describe generating pancreatic progenitor cells from pluripotent stem cells, differentiating these cells to the endocrine lineage, and how these cells can be used to better understand pancreatic development and diabetes. You can watch the full webinar at www.stemcell.com slash done webinar. That's www.stemcell.com slash D-U-N-N webinar. All right, guys, today on the show we have for you Dr. Tanishta Rea, who is professor of pharmacology and medicine at University of California, San Diego. Dr. Rea's lab focuses on understanding the signaling pathways that regulate the choice between stem cell self-renewal and commitment, and defining how the same signals are subverted in cancer. Dr. Rea, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. Can you start just giving us a brief overview of the research focus in your lab? Yeah. Um, so the overall goal of uh, the research in my lab has uh, generally been to understand how stem cell signals can be hijacked to drive cancer progression. Um, so one aspect of this that we have found uh, to be of particular interest is how an early precancerous lesion uh, that may start with one mutation and is not in and of itself a threat, uh, becomes with additional mutations much more aggressive um, and therapy resistant. So because this transition is marked by a reacquisition of an immature state, uh, stem cell signals can be a fundamental driver of this. And we've studied this uh, from multiple perspectives that sort of include um, you know, genetic approaches, uh, imaging approaches, and crossing uh, a couple of different types of cancers that include leukemia and pancreatic cancer. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you kind of started, I guess, in, in the blood field and moved into uh, cancer uh, in the pancreas, and we're kind of circle around to that. But let's talk about the pancreas. Your most recent story was uh, about pancreatic cancer, and, and pancreatic cancer is kind of in the news a lot lately. Alex Trebek famously of Jeopardy, was diagnosed and now is in near remission, which is amazing. Um, there was just a story at the end of last week from David Ting Lab at Mass General talking about the stroma microenvironment and how that uh, shapes the tumor architecture. I didn't really understand it, but I tried. Uh, I barely understood your article. But, I mean, <laughs> popularly, I think everyone understands pancreatic cancer as kind of a death sentence. But for this recent news and your work, it seems like we're chipping away. Can you give us an idea of the scope of the disease, um, you know, prevalence, mortality, mainline therapy, and how we're building on that? Yeah, so it is actually, uh, at the present time, the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths. So it used to be, about a year ago, almost fourth after breast cancer, and its incidence isn't rising, and it's uh, really difficult to treat, uh, and it's fairly therapy resistance, as you mentioned. So uh, the five-year survival is uh, about 9%. Um, 
and some of the rise in its absolute numbers may be linked to increasing incidence of diabetes. Uh, in terms of uh, therapies, uh, the first line is usually some type of chemotherapy, most commonly uh, gemcitabine. Uh, and there's an incredible amount of work to really change that landscape in terms of responsiveness. Um, so, you know, that is where sort of we're involved. And of course, many people who have uh, traditionally been in that field as well. So what is it about pancreatic cancer that makes it such a, a killer? Is it because that you only catch it once it's finally disseminated? Uh, if you could, is it, I mean, that full stop, is that it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is that we don't catch it till it's very late stage. And for some reason, it's highly asymptomatic in its early uh, uh, initiation uh, process. And it's sort of deep within your body, so it's not easily uh, something that you can feel. So many years sort of go by uh, before it is detected. And I, as you know, in general, with cancers, the later you detect something, the more unresponsive or more difficult to treat it can be. Um, so I think that's like a, a very big challenge in pancreatic cancer is uh, uh, that the detection can be very late or is very late. So I'm going to come back quickly to Alex Trebek because he's a national hero. And I, I think it's probably too soon to say with this news, right, if he's in near remission, it's probably very premature in terms of his prognosis uh, long term. But just, I mean, to put it into the scope of um, the disease and progress that we've made in treating it, do you think that there is a, a, that we're getting better in terms of our, our treatment? Are, are, there, are there new therapies? Or are we pretty much stuck with the same thing we've been using for decades? I mean, we have developed some new approaches that includes uh, a Braxane. Uh, so it depends a little bit on uh, what a person can tolerate in terms of therapy and how aggressively you can treat the cancer. And certainly, you know, there are many people who will do uh, much better and it, people undergo surgery and they have uh, better responses. If it's small enough, you can undergo surgery. Um, so, and from my perspective, I've been on a stand-up to cancer team, which is a, a dream team for pancreatic cancer, uh, to develop new treatments. And we have advocates on the team who have uh, had sort of very long survival times. And so I think it's hard to say uh, who does better for what reason. So that's the other thing is difficult to predict. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly, I mean, it is not across the board uh, that everyone will do poorly, and there's always hope hmm. uh, that someone will respond really well to even the therapies on the ground right now. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, that's where we're at. Let's talk about the future. Uh, your recent work, I think, is representative of the kind of move we're making. Uh, I say we, I should say you, um, and and uh, researchers like you. Uh, Using kind of the high technology as, as those at the cutting edge always have to kind of find the Achilles heel for pancreatic cancer, can you elaborate on these studies and how they may ultimately work to reduce uh, mortality? Um, so our study specifically? Yes, in this recent okay. paper in Cell, please. Yeah, so 
this new paper is really based on uh, a paper a study we published a few years ago uh, showing that uh, within the pancreas and within the pancreatic tumor, um, the cells are fairly heterogeneous, the cancer cells. This is in addition to the stroma that you mentioned earlier. Um, so the tumor can be very heterogeneous, and what we found was um, that a particular subpopulation of cells within the tumor were particularly aggressive uh, and drove lethality and were particularly enriched in uh, drug resistance capacity. So we showed this a few years ago, and what we did was we've been studying that population of cells uh, because uh, it was an attempt or a, a way to study the most therapy resistance of all um, uh, the population of, of cancer cells that you could uh, see. Um, and we decided to study sort of the molecular infrastructure of that population to understand why these cells that looked particularly like stem cells or were high for stem cell programs, what made them so aggressive, what made them uh, drive lethality um, uh, more efficiently. Uh, so in this new story, what we did was we sort of did a genome-wide analysis looking at why this population, the stem cell population, um, is different, uh, both transcriptomically, so we looked at all the RNA expression in that cell type um, and uh, using RNA-seq. Uh, and then we looked at sort of the epigenetics, um, uh, looked at the chromatin uh, state um, using H3K27 acetyl marks uh, to see what um, uh, parts of the genome were open or poised or ready to be expressed. Uh, and then, of course, that told us what sort of the landscape might be in this population, but it didn't tell us what of all of that was important. So then we did a genome-wide uh, CRISPR screen to look at functionally, if you disrupt you know, every gene that you could, which of all that uh, was actually important, which of all that did the cancer really need uh, to continue to be aggressive and therapy-resistant. So that is sort of um, fundamentally uh, how we approached it. And, and what that did is really yield uh, a network of programs that are really critical uh, for pancreatic cancer uh, uh, to continue to grow, uh, to resist all the therapies that we have, uh, and, and to be as lethal as it is. So do you think this is kind of uh, uh, a, a mark of things to come in terms of, well, so I think this is more generic. We're talking about uh, pancreatic cancer, broadly speaking, right? Because this was a, a de novo cancer model in mouse. Am, am I correct? And that yeah. this isn't like a so xenograft. This, this is actually we started with an autochthonous model that was developed by multiple people, including Tyler Jags, Dave Tuveson, Andy Lowy, uh, and and this is a model in which you can uh, mute p53 and RAS are mutated. Um, but in the pancreas specifically, uh, it's often called the KPC mouse for uh, KRAS, B53, and the Cree is off of a pancreas promoter. Um, so it's called an autochthonous model because the tumor grows endogenously, so you don't have to transplant it. So it's as physiologic as, uh, you know, as a model could be. So we actually took those cells, and generally a lot of CRISPR screens are done not with primary cells, because the need for cells 
are, is so large. So, but we uh, decided to do a primary screen. So we used the KPC lines um, and generated sort of primary lines that are much closer to the real tumor. Um, and so each run of the CRISPR analysis was about 100 million cells mm -hmm. from a tumor. Um, and then we did it multiple times. Um, but what that did was it gave us a much closer physiologic view, not of a line that has been grown, you know, for decades, mm -hmm. uh, but something that's much closer to the true uh, tumor uh, from an in vivo setting. And then the other thing that we did was we did the analysis in 3D, um, which enriches for stem cell content. So only stem cells will make these organoids and only stem cells make these spheres, sphere cultures. So we did the screen both in 2D, sort of more conventionally, how most CRISPR screens are done. And then we added, sort of layered on top of it, a 3D screen, which enriched only for stem cell growth. And so that really allowed us uh, to get a view of everything that the stem cell population uh, or the more, most aggressive population uh, was dependent on. And I, I do think, you know, when you ask, is this the way things are going to be? I mean, I think sort of the power of all the new technology, uh, I, I think, does position a lot of um, the current science to ask these questions uh, at, a, at a genome-wide level and really get a, a, a very comprehensive view of everything that could be influencing uh, tumor genesis and therapy resistance. Yeah, and I think m most importantly, as you mentioned, uh, was the functional element with the CRISPR screen. And, you know, whether it's either a patient-specific tumor that you're doing some kind of bioassay in in vitro or in mice, or if it's more like your autochthonous, um, de novo, endogenous tumor emergence type thing, the, the question I want to ask is that CRISPR has been around for, like, let's say, whatever it's been, five years, five-odd years, um, and it's added this whole other dimension, right? So I, I, not only is this a sign of things to come for science, but I feel like are we on the cusp now of this clinical revolution because we have this functional dimension but genome-wide that all these, I mean, you must have patented some of this stuff. In fact, I know you have. Are we on the cusp of this where there's going to have a whole new uh, flood of pathways that have been discovered in this unbiased way in, a, in specific cancers and there's going to be new drugs on the market? Because we didn't know that the targets were really even there before CRISPR. Do you think that, that we're on the cusp of that? I mean, I think so. I think you can already start to see a lot of papers coming out along these lines. And, and often the papers are, you know, looking at 100 cancer lines at once, doing all of the mapping at once. And I think for, from my perspective, the power of that kind of analysis is really that you can hold the data up to a really high bar. So, for example, for us, because, you know, we could detect thousands of genes that were dependencies, we could say, well, I'm looking for something unknown so far, but also something that's completely druggable and also something that has a drug in the clinic, perhaps for something else. And, and that sort of multi-layered uh, decision-making that this allows allow, sort of enabled us to focus on, on a pathway that we can talk about later if you want, uh, which is this nuclear hormone receptor receptor called RR gamma um, that actually is being targeted clinically in context of autoimmune disease. And I think that capability we wouldn't really have had 
had we not been able to really screen through all of the pathways that we were able to, because then we could say, well, I don't want, I'm not interested in this set quite yet because it's not targetable or there is not a drug in phase two. So that ability to accelerate, I think, translation or the discovery of translation is um, really made that much more um, effective with strategies like uh, CRISPR, I think. Hmm. Why wait till later to talk about ROR? Gamma, let's talk about it now. What's the next step there? I mean, is it clinical trials? Do you, do you take now stuff, like you said, stuff that's already been proven safe, maybe it's for something else. Can you, like, kind of leapfrog? I mean, I'm sure you got to take it through the trials in the specific patient class that you're talking about, so you're not going to go straight to any phase three, obviously. But does that, like, propel or accelerate the, uh, the translation of this drug into clinic? Yeah, absolutely. So... What that does is it puts us in a position where we can say, well, let's take a clinical grade agent that targets this pathway uh, because, you know, of all the science that we've done and published, um, and let's really see how far we can take it. And so we're funded uh, through Stand Up to Cancer to do that work as well as through the NCI um, and test any clinical grade agents that we um, can access and see if you can do the preclinical work then with that agent. So the work that we published was really with a tool compound that was targeting this pathway that was developed at Scripps. Uh, but we were in the process of accessing these drugs that are clinically uh, available or have at least gone through phase one or early stage uh, trials, uh, like I said, in context of autoimmunity, so in context of psoriasis and IBD. Uh, our plan is to do all the preclinical work with that new agent and see if a lot of the work that we reported uh, essentially bears out with this new clinical agent. And if it does, then the idea would be that it would position us for clinical trials in pancreatic cancer. And given that it's such a high uh, need disease where people are uh, often have nothing you know, to turn to, um, I think it's really important that we focus on this and prioritize this as much as we can. I mean, I would really like to take it as far as I'm able uh, and, and not really sort of walk away from it. I sort of feel in some part that it's a responsibility to, if, if we found this uh, in terms of a discovery, uh, that we see if it really bears out clinically and it actually could help somebody. Very cool. And, uh, like, you know, what is, in terms of... Uh, Recruitment of patients. I mean, is that that's something that you don't really think about at this stage? You said you're just going to see if you can reprise the results in the in the animal trials. But like when you do, uh, if when you move it to the next step, what is the 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 resources you count on for for to fund those trials? I mean, I know you're in in California. Do you? And given that you have access to the CIRM, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, have you or do you seek uh, funding for that? Does that fit within the, the Rubicon of their, of their um, you know, ambitions for that fund? I mean, definitely could. Uh, they have definitely funded me uh, for other leukemia-based projects. Um, this one is currently funded uh, both by Stand Up to Cancer, different aspects of it, uh, as well as supported by the NCI, the National Cancer Institute. Um, and I would say that if 
the preclinical work on patient samples and the models with the drug actually look promising, I would probably turn, you know, both to standard cancer and NCI trials, as you know, can be very expensive, mm. and perhaps the actual uh, pharma as well to sort of collectively fund it. So um, I think that can be a little bit complex because um, it would perhaps need multiple partners to come to the table. But I think we've uh, done that, you know, fairly successfully in the past. And for something like this, where uh, people are really looking for the next thing, for something to change um, the the landscape of disease and treatment. I do feel like we would have a lot of interest in trying to help us go to trial. So you have, you mentioned you have been funded with more of your AML stuff with the CERM. Do you think that they've capitalized on that, on that, you know, what the voters kind of, what they sold to the voters in California, which was that, well, I know there was a shift. We had um, one of the major ad administrative leaders of the CERM on the show a while back, and he, he let us know, and I think it, with great clarity, how there was a kind of renewal of the mission and a, not a shift in focus, but a, a maybe a, a rechanneling of the focus uh, uh, onto um, a little bit more clinical application and translation. Uh, because I think that was the sell to the voters. We're going to fund stem cells. It's, you know, experimental, and it's going to circle around and lead to treatments. Do you think that this in California has been, there's been an enrichment of these studies that are now bleeding into early phase trials? Yeah, I mean, I think they have prioritized that in the later stages of uh, the CIRM timeline. Um, I, I think, you know, because it started a time where it was one of the drivers of expanding regenerative medicine research. It's almost like you needed that base, you know, to build on it. Uh, so it's not like it was coming in at a time when for decades we'd been understanding the science and now we were ready to go clinical. So I think in some part it also helped build that base and the preclinical work and how do you even do a trial in regenerative medicine. Uh, so I would say in their defense that you really needed that, and they did a lot of that in California and with partners. Uh, and and I think they have focused more recently on more aggressively pursuing trials. Um, I would say that if you're just looking purely at regenerative medicine, uh, it's obviously because the science is you know further behind. I would say and. Um, going to trials or, or having a lot of successful trials can be more challenging because uh, probably the only arena in which uh, transplants are successful are in the bone marrow. Everything else needs to be figured out. Um, whereas in something like cancer, where there is so much biology in place and people already kind of know how to do trials and have been doing it, I think there, if you focus on, on the stem cell component and, and on targeting it, the trials can go much more rapidly and the translational can be much more rapid. So I think they have done a mixture of it, but I would say um, a lot of their focus has been on the regenerative side, and I think expanding more into cancers uh, has been helpful or could be helpful in terms of accelerating the translational capacity hmm. uh, in the clinic. Okay. So yeah, we're, we've been talking about your, your current life in uh, on the West Coast in California. I want to talk about your first life there. You were uh, trained, uh, one of your uh, major mentors in, in your training was Irv Weissman. Uh, and if you look at like the neuro tree, I don't know if you've seen there, anyone listening, the neuro tree, the academic uh, 
family tree or whatever you call it. It's actually fascinating um, yes. to just see the, the dendrograms and how many people are in science, just period, much less uh, who influenced whom. But, you know, looking at uh, your roots, you see that you came out of the Weissman lab and were, you know, alongside some major notable researchers, among them like Sean Morrison comes to mind, who's a co-author. You probably worked alongside him because you were on the same paper together as co-authors. So I'm sure you worked alongside him. Tell me this. When you're in, in as, a, as a young trainee in a lab and, you know, under a, a god like Irv, and you're surrounded by an army of postdocs. Maybe it wasn't an army at that point, but there's a lot of people in that lab, I'm sure. Does it? Does is it? Does is there like an aura around a Sean Morrison type? You know that he like you know is just like a, a shining knight. You just can see him radiating his glory, glory and brilliance. Or is he look like everybody else in the army at that point? And then who knows how it's going to shake out in terms of lineage and who goes on to where. Can you tell a star in their nascent state? Um, actually, I didn't overlap with Sean, so I wouldn't quite know the details of how he functioned in the lab. So we were co-authors on a review uh, on stem cells and cancer, but he was already faculty at the time mm. uh, when I was in Irv's lab. So I probably cannot speak specifically about Sean, but I can probably more generally give you sort of my take on that. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, if you look at these labs, uh, like a really major contributing lab, a lot of the postdocs there, um, I think, could be successful. And they're sort of all at the top of their careers or at their stages. So I think it's a little bit difficult at that point to say, with sort of any degree of certainty how someone's career unfolds because everybody's really smart and everyone's really driven. Um, I think you can probably see that some are more committed to an academic career and some may be more interested in industry. So you might be able to start to tell those apart. But in terms of, you know, the folks that go into academia who would, you know, quote unquote, succeed, uh, whatever that criteria is, is maybe not as predictable as one might think. Because if you think about it, so I started my career at Duke, and I would say everybody who was recruited to Duke was from a major lab and very productive in their postdoctoral career. So I think at that point, there's no way to say exactly, they were all stars, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and then how their faculty career unfolds and, and progresses is... I think not something you may have been able to predict necessarily because it's a combination, obviously, of initiative, creativity, uh, but also sort of the, what you're working on and the decisions you make along the way mm -hmm. and a little bit of luck in terms of your discoveries, but also what you decide to do with the discoveries, you know, what you don't walk away from, what you pursue, uh, what you're willing to walk away from. So, so I think that combination... Uh, uh, sort of collectively yields a really successful, uh, productive, uh, you know, faculty member or investigator. Um, and, and I'm not sure that you would know at time zero of um, recruitment that this person would make X discovery and this person mm -hmm. may not, mm -hmm. if you want to consider that, let's say, success. Got it. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. 
Um, you mentioned that you, you started Duke. Uh, and when you started at Duke, you followed up on what you had been working on, which is in, in the blood, focus on hematopoiesis and malignant hematopoiesis. Um, but now you're making a major contribution in the pancreas. Can you just explain that progression? I mean, it's obviously you follow the science, but I just want to see how the science led you from the blood to the pancreas. Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, ability to transition or willingness to transition has one of, been one of the more interesting and fun aspects of my career. Um, I think it may in part reflect, you know, some need on my part to keep things interesting or keep myself entertained. Um, but when I started Duke, actually, like not thinking back, I was almost certain that all I'd be working on uh, for the rest of my career was hematopoietic stem cells. So I think I wasn't as perhaps broad thinking, or I really should have been because Irv is very broad thinking. Um, uh, but I was fairly focused at the time. I mean, it was all about stem cells, stem cell regeneration. Um, and along the way, we started to work on some pathways. And we had written this review at the time that Irv was instrumental in sort of conceptualizing on the links between stem cells and cancer. So it was there sort of at the back of my mind, but it wasn't something I was acting on or incorporating. But a few years in, while we were working on regenerative medicine, um, we were working on pathways like the WINT pathway and the hedgehog pathway. And after we did the work on stem cells and regeneration, it felt like there was more to do. So we started going into sort of leukemia and whether the same pathways were uh, hijacked during leukemia progression as it went from an indolent state to being more aggressive um, and uh, faster moving. Um, and at the time, you know, I had no cancer training. I mean, I obviously still don't. I'm purely trained in immunology and then trained in uh, hematopoietic stem cells. Uh, so I'm really, like, not a cancer biologist by training. So I think I was uh, worried about how, you know, I could navigate that space. But a lot of the people in leukemia, in the leukemia field, were incredibly sort of helpful, supportive, people like Warren Pear. Uh, Craig Jordan, friends of mine, uh, and I would essentially be on the phone asking them about models and how to test this. We had all the, all the genetics, so we often made these knockouts, so the smoothen knockout, the beta catenin knockout. Uh, we made, um, uh, you know, others along the way, which we can talk about. But, um, but they really helped me figure out how to use that genetics and ask the questions in leukemia. So we did that for a few pathways, like the hedgehog pathway, the wind pathway. Um, and we were also at the same time working on asymmetric division and whether that was a driver of cancer progression. And through that, we felt we stumbled onto this pathway that's RNA-binding protein called Musashi, which formed the basis of a lot of future work starting around 2009. Um, and that pathway was very new, unlike the other things that we were working on. So Wint, Hedgehog had been worked on, Notch had been worked on. Although we clearly had a space in terms of leukemia progression, um, it wasn't that there was like nothing known about it. But when we hit Musashi, there was suddenly this pathway that seemed very exciting and very important, yet very few people knew what it was or knew what it did. So. The first uh, piece of work that we did was in leukemia progression. We made uh, we made these knockouts. Uh, we showed that uh, it was necessary for progression in CML going CML going to blast crisis CML. 
But as we ended that story, I was still at Duke, and I remember seeing a lot of the literature showing that it was very high in other solid cancers like GBM, high-grade breast cancer, colon cancer, but nobody really knew, or nobody was working on it as far as I could tell. So um, we finished that story. I moved to uh, San Diego um, around 2011, at the beginning of 2011. And I became interested in asking whether this was really a paradigm across aggressive cancers and in solid cancers. So I think it was some combination of my willingness to step outside my comfort zone, as well as uh, the space and interest that the pathway allowed. So I think that's sort of the kind of thing when I said it's a co often a combination of things and you cannot predict it. Um, I would say this was a good example of that where I didn't plan this at all, but it, it was a confluence of events. But we did take that opportunity, I would say, you know, rather than walking away from it. So when I moved here, I met um, a pancreatic cancer surgeon uh, named Andy Lowy, and we were at the time uh, looking for a solid cancer model to test this on. And of course, like, I was really nervous because I didn't know anything about solid cancer. I barely, you know, understood, like, leukemia at the time. Um, but he was really interested in sort of pursuing this and or helping us pursue it. Um, and I learned basically everything uh, about pancreatic cancer that I know from him. Uh, and I would say that the field is another really good example of a field that's very open, uh, really interested in people from other fields coming in. They're very dedicated to changing, you know, sort of the outcomes. And you can really tell, you know, there's a lot of drive in the field. It's a very... Um, active uh, and dynamic field right now. Um, so we stepped into that through people like that, you know, who, uh, you know, taught us what the cancer was about, the models, and how to go about uh, testing its impact. So that is essentially how we got into pancreatic cancer. But the data was really striking. And, and, and this whole idea that a stem cell signal that was completely silent was reactivated uh, and so critical uh, has been really, I think, gratifying over the years to sort of see repeatedly that this pattern, you know, mm. plays out and is a really can be an effective target or can be an effective strategy to understand progression and drug resistance. Mm -hmm. So I know you alluded to, to glio there, solid tumors. Can we expect the next decade, decade to be the decade of glioblastoma in the Ray Lab? Are you going to take <laughs> take a swing at that one? <laughs> no, I mean, I... You know, at some point, suddenly we expanded into multiple solid cancers. We have some lung and colon, and I really want to reel it all back, <laughs> back to like leukemia and pancreas, because at some point, I think what I want to avoid doing is doing the same thing in multiple cancers. Mm -hmm. um, what I'd like to do is sort of, uh, you know, gain more depth in any one or move it forward. So rather than, you know, going from discovery to discovery, to really take this discovery and move it as far as we can. And I think the RR gamma work is a good example of that. Um, so I would like to sort of control it <laughs> at this point. Um, yeah. well. But it is interesting is because when I went from regenerative medicine or regeneration to uh, heme malignancies, a lot of people wanted to then work on the leukemia side. And when I went from leukemia to pancreatic or included pancreatic, a lot of people want to work on solid cancer. So in some ways, I fully cannot control how the lab shifts mm -hmm. uh, because I am very responsive to what people want to do because I think people do best when they are doing what they love doing. So, so I allow them to do that. 
then of course it expands in ways that I'm not fully able to control the balance. So actually at this point, for example, there's nobody really working on hematopoietic stem cell renewal, where is where we started. Yeah. But it's, it's mostly because once you start working on cancer, the postdocs you get, the students you get are interested in right. cancer. And then once you work on solid cancers, they want to work on solid cancer. Right. So right. it's been an interesting you know, journey from that perspective, but it's been really exciting the whole way. Well, if you uh, retire today, it'd be enough, Tanista. I gotta be honest. <laughs> oh, thank you. And, I don't uh, know, but I would love to be able to move some of this to the clinic, honestly. So well, it looks like it's on its way. And be honest, leukemia and pancreatic—it's enough. It's enough. It's enough <laughs> for any one lab, right? Um, so, talking more about just like the cultural element as a, a woman in science, there was this article recently in the New York Times I read in the magazine talking about how this was at Salk some female professors felt that they, quote, faced a culture of marginalization and hostility, unquote, and that there were clear disparities in faculty support that were based, at least in part, on gender bias. So you're a woman of Indian origin. Uh, you're operating at the top of your field. You've been all over the place. You know, you started at Penn, then you went west and then you went back east to duke and now you're back west you've been everywhere and you've been in a lot of different cultures what's your take on the balance of resources uh balance of resources and opportunity in the sciences um and i mean you have also a a, a unique i think uh, other insight into diversity along another dimension um what's your take on that do you think things have things have changed much for better or worse in, in your relatively, you know, young time in, in the sciences? Um, I mean, you know, I would say, first of all, that I've personally had a lot of support from a lot of people, a lot of men, um, and I'm always, you know, very grateful for that. Um, so I think, um, I, I don't think we could be doing all the work were it not for great collaborators and mentors along those lines. and. Uh, but I will say that, you know, as I sort of uh, move forward in my career or become more senior, uh, it's also pretty clear that I would say in terms, I mean, we can talk both about early career and, and later careers. Uh, at this point in time, I sort of see a lot of, you know, leadership and, and, and people in positions of power, let's say. And I would say that um, group of people tend to continue to be um, largely men. Um, and, and I think that in and of itself is a real challenge. And I think if you don't make an effort to change it, it doesn't change. You know, if you're sort of oblivious to that fact, I would say it doesn't change. And I think when women cannot see themselves as leaders or they do not see themselves in positions um, of power, it, it is then difficult to sort of reach for that uh, or feel really confident that your career can go as high as you as it possibly could without any kind of sort of cap or ceiling on it. Um, so I, I do see that. I mean, I don't think the leadership really reflects even the fraction of women that are in academia, in faculty positions, and it also doesn't reflect like all the really capable and um, exceptional women in those positions. I mean, the other part of this, I would say, is, of course, the transition from postdoc to faculty positions to begin with, because postdocs, as you probably know, are maybe 50 percent. 
maybe grad students are more than 50% women. Um, and I think there's always this expectation that it was it would filter through the pipeline, but it, as you've probably read, it's like a very leaky pipeline. You know, women make a lot of decisions for a lot of reasons to not go from postdoc uh, to a faculty position. Um, and, and I think it's really important to sort of actively try to counter that. I mean, I, I don't think just waiting for this to work itself out is working, I would say. I mean, I, that's not to say there are no changes and that there's no effort. There's certainly effort, but I would say it needs much more aggressive effort and intervention um, than uh, I think is currently, that we're currently seeing on the ground. And I, I don't think the landscape would really change without uh, a greater effort along those lines. Do you think, I mean, and this is just kind of a silly question, but just to try and get within just like how far away from a solution are we? I feel like, you know, stage one, stage two, stage three, maybe like stage one, say identifying and there's some element of action in stage two and then who knows resolution in stage three. Are we still in stage one? Are we still like drawing attention to and identifying the problem? Do you think there's any like act like real, I guess, tangible, you know, substantial uh, activity? Um, or do you think it's a lot of talk and a lot of maybe putting putting some optics on some choices, but real as, as like as a culture, like you said, you know, we it hasn't really we haven't really started the ball rolling, would you say, or do you think we're moving? I mean, I would say we're moving, but we're moving at a glacial pace, mm. and it really needs to change if we'll actually make a dent in this seriously. And, and there's really no excuse for it, I feel. Uh, because if you look at the women who are postdocs, they're exceptional. There's no reason to lose that talent at all. And I just think societally, we are not capable or, or no, not doing enough to protect those people from being lost to the system. I mean, why would you go through the trouble of educating all these amazing people and then being willing to just lose them to the system, you know, or, or not worrying about it? when they are gone. And I just feel like it's really imperative that we do more uh, to focus on trying to uh, prevent their loss and protect their talent, really, because it, it makes a huge difference. I mean, rather than going deeper into uh, an untalented, not to say that people are not talented, but, you know, going deeper into a pool, it'd be better to sort of keep everybody who's very talented than be willing to just lose them. And, and I, I, I feel really strongly that uh, I think the effort, the pace of the effort is really lagging. And, and I think, but it's, I think some um, combination, and this is not just the SOC, it's multiple places of, I think not just being sensitive to the issue. And, and it's, you know, maybe like if you're a man, it's not obvious. And, and I think that needs to change. But I think that's a really good, reason to have more women leaders because they're very sensitive to this and they when they recruit or when they put a, a meeting together they're automatically better balanced mm. you know and and i think it's a really good thing to think about is that if if your leadership were more diverse your entire population of productive scientists would be more diverse and it's just something to i think think about in terms of how you want to really meet this head-on well training uh the next generation of female and male scientists. I think it's about inspiration. You've had a really inspirational story 
uh, just as a person in science, your trajectory, I think, would be considered rather unconventional, born, raised in the, the foothills of the Himalayas, if I'm not wrong, and then across to uh, a small liberal arts college, Williams, I mean, maybe not small, but liberal arts emphasis, so not really university science thing. You wouldn't think uh, you would go there explicitly for science training. And then, you know, back and forth, west to east coast in the hardcore sciences on a meteoric rise. Um, it's a great story along many, I think, dimensions, you know, especially considering the mo what's going on in the modern day with the immigration and whatnot. I think there's a hostility uh, there um, that is maybe a barrier to that inspiration that, that I mentioned. Do you think that stories like yours are are becoming more or less common as we move forward in this uncertain future? Um, I mean, well, you're very kind, first of all. I don't, but I don't think I'm that unusual. I mean, I feel um, like a lot of people are in positions like mine. Um, and I think overall, I can see that, if anything, it would be more common. I mean, I think my path through the liberal arts school was a little bit of not knowing what I wanted to do and the possibility. So I have like a family um, who there's a lot of like writers and um, in my family. And I think it wasn't clear to me whether I would go sort of down that path or into the sciences. Um, so that was partly the reason for going to a liberal arts school for me. Um, and I think there's an interesting statistic actually that more scientists at large universities are all, are drawn uh, uh, preferentially from smaller liberal arts schools than mm -hmm. from large universities. And I don't know if it's just that the training is much more uh, hands-on or the ratios are different, but uh, early faith training, I think, could be very exceptional in a small setting. Um, so I had I would, uh, a really a special mentor uh, uh, at Williams, and I, I would say it was because of him in large part that I became a scientist. I think just that um, feeling that he thought, you know, I could do really well and he wouldn't sort of let me not be a scientist, you know. So I think it's interesting how small things or things you might perceive as sort of small decisions, you know, lead to very long-term consequences. But um, so I think that was sort of my trajectory. Um, in, in terms of, I think, other people, uh, I mean, I do see a lot of diversity in science. Obviously, you do probably too, right? Like a lot of the trainees are from all over. So I would say over time, it, it is probably going to be more common than less. And hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, well, that's one place I think we can count on uh, diversity in the US is in the labs. Like you said, it's. Uh, it's only when I go other places into other workplaces that I see, not how homogenous it is, but I mean, I, I look around my lab and no one was born in the United States, you know. So that's a, it's a great, it's a great place. New York, of course, but I'm sure it's similar in the West Coast, and I'm sure it's similar in labs the world over, because you know, science doesn't have any specific language, or maybe <laughs> I guess it does English, <laughs> but you know, metaphorically speaking. Um, yeah. Maybe that's a good segue to the to the uh, kind of latter portion of the interview where we go into kind of science peripheral questions. Um, we can start with one on, on, on the note of kind of inspiration and, and mentorship and influence. 
Uh, who are your scientific heroes, or who is your scientific hero? I mean, I would have to say that Irv would be a very major part of, uh, you know, somebody who's a scientific hero for me. Um, I would say I think what I've, what I really learned from him, or what I really admire about him, um, is I think some sense of fearlessness, um, some sense of if this is really important to do or this is really interesting, you just do it. And whether you're not in the field or you are in the field, it's sort of irrelevant. Like I think you go figure out what you need to do. Um, and take on a problem that you think is important. Um, and I think the other thing that I really admire about him is also the balance between, you know, excellence as a scientist, as well as sort of the sensitivity um, that if there was potential in that science to move something forward, to be of help to somebody, that it was important to pursue and not sort of move on to the next story. And and I think that is something that I learned pretty early on from him because I think there was this moment where um, he said something about, you know, moving something into the clinic. And I said, well, isn't someone else gonna do it? And and he was like, there is no one else. Hmm. And, and that has been really true as my career has, you know, unfolded over time is that it's very clear that if you think, well, I'm going to do the discovery and someone else is going to come translate this, that's just not going to happen. And if you think there's potential here, if you think this is important, you know, you do it, you go figure it out and you do it, you make that effort. And it's like your responsibility because somebody is depending on this or someone's really depending on you to make that effort. And, and I, so I think from that perspective, I learned a lot from him, you know, to not stop, but to keep going um, and not sort of be afraid that this was like outside of um, your comfort zone. Um, so I, I would say from those points of view, he's very much a scientific hero and very much some one I've learned essentially um, most of how I function or the work that I do is very much inspired by him. Yeah, Irv is uh, my only... My only thing I would disagree with you there is I think he's moved beyond hero to like legend. <laughs> And now yes, he's, 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 he's aspiring now for godhood, I think. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, it doesn't, it yeah, doesn't mean incredible. much doesn't mean much to him, but I think everyone else <laughs> would uh, very, very much assign him yeah. more than a hero. Um, and next, uh, what was uh, the greatest or most uh, memorable science revelation or surprise in your career, so-called aha moment? And after that, if, if you have any, uh, what was the greatest disappointment or kind of like negative results, surprise, or maybe positive, something you weren't expecting, serendipity? Um, so, I mean, I would say that the whole story around Musashi and discovering its role in cancer was very much a memorable scientific uh, revelation for me. So we were Im essentially imaging. So one side of my lab, or one big interest in my lab is to image um, you know, living cells um, in its native microenvironment to understand how cancers grow in, inside the body, to really get a system-wide view of this. And one of the things we were doing, this is when I was still back at Duke, was trying to understand how, you know, asymmetric division proceeded and how it was regulated. So we'd found that stem cells undergo asymmetric division and that that's a key way of maintaining the balance between 
renewing stem cells and differentiated cells. And what we wanted to ask was whether that process was disrupted to lead to more undifferentiated daughters that might, for a cancer, be important for progression because often it turns into a very undifferentiated state. So we um, used a protein, we're studying a protein called NUM, which is a notch inhibitor, and it's mostly in differentiated cells. We had found that it was inherited asymmetrically in the hematopoietic stem cells and progenitors, similar to what has been reported in invertebrates in the past by other labs. So we started to look in um, leukemia progression and found that NUM was in fact very high in indolin disease, but it was all shut off as the cancer or the leukemia became more aggressive and undifferentiated. So that was very aligned with what we what we had sort of postulated, but wasn't clear how the oncogene turned down NUM or turned down differentiation programs. So we were looking for an NUM repressor and stumbled onto Musashi, which is an RNA binding protein that had been shown to be a NUM repressor in Drosophila mm -hmm. uh, and some neural stem cells. And this is work done by Craig Montel and Hideyuki Okano. Um, so we decided to try to look, and nobody's really worked on cancer at the time. Uh, so we started to just look and looked in leukemia first, and it had this amazing uh, pattern. You know, it was uh, high in hematopoietic stem cells, low with differentiation. It came back, it was again low with chronic disease, the so CML, and it was uh, massively upregulated with blast crisis as mm. the disease became more undifferentiated. And then, and we blocked it, you know, there's a progression defect. Then the reviewer said, what does this all mean for people? We looked at 120 patients, and every patient who had hit blast <laughs> crisis it was massively upregulated. It was like this pattern I couldn't have, you know, dreamt up almost mm. because people are so diverse, but everybody had massively upregulated it. Wow. And I think that moment of feeling that here we were doing all this mass models work, it was also the, one of the first times we'd done patient work, actually. Um, and we were really after it for the signs, but then suddenly it hit this kind of leukemia progression and all these people had the same pattern and it was a prognostic from our analysis. It was really a moment when I felt like whatever we were doing could be really important to understand, you know, cancer progression and possibly down the line be helpful to pre preventing it or intercepting it. And, and I think that just sort of, it was a revelation in some ways because like I said, we were sort of pursuing our curiosity. Yeah. It's very interesting, isn't it? Blah, blah, blah. But then suddenly it sort of opens up this whole avenue of really going after cancers that are becoming more aggressive. What's that like? And Is that like, because everyone has this idea of like, ah, epiphany, you know, like, you know, aha. But that, what you're describing, it seems like kind of like it just sinks in. Like you get the result, you're yeah. like, oh my God, that's awesome. And then like over the course of days, you're just like, oh my yeah. God, like this is really important. Yeah, I think it was more like that, where it was hard to believe that it could be a very pivotal moment, actually, a very pivotal discovery, uh, both for us and perhaps for the field. Um, and over time, it's sunk in more and more, because as it emerges as a critical component of so many other cancers. It's sort of hard to believe, you know, when we started. Mm -hmm. And when we're just looking at asymmetric division, we were just hunting for a repressor <laughs> of numb. And then it's massively high in all these aggressive cancers. And if you shut it down, 
like we've actually shut down in GBM and it, it just melts it, you know. And hey, so, you said you weren't going to get into GBM. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. You can't really trust me. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's more of what you're saying where over time it's more and more surprising to me that we stumbled onto this, you know, that we found it. And I, I do think it was only because I'm in academia that we could keep pursuing it, that we could look at explore all its possible angles and where it could be important and not nobody asked us to stop you know and I would say that's a really amazing part of being an academic is that we could just follow the lead you know and mm -hmm. and, and just keep going and if it was important it just emerges being more and more important so I would say of all the things I've done that um, work has probably been the most pivotal and possibly would define, you know, what I go on to do uh, in terms of maybe targeting it, um, uh, identifying its role across a lot of cancers. Sky's so the I limit. The sky is the limit. Tanisha, that is such a good story. That's the question. That is correct. <laughs> okay. You answered the question correctly, and we're going to forego any disappointing story because okay, like, I don't want to end on a downer. That is so good. Um, thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, you know, this was a really great conversation and, uh, we hope to have you on again. I feel like I'm going to have to, uh, check on you to make sure you don't actually get into GBM. Like you, <laughs> okay. like you said you were. All right. I'll save it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much again for having me. Of course. It was a real pleasure. That was a fascinating interview with Dr. Tanishta Rea. I love hearing about those pivotal moments, those aha moments. It's like magic, you know? When you listen to Dr. Rea talk about that moment when she saw the Musashi and all the patient samples, and I think what's more important, when you, when you listen to how she talks about how, how that sunk in over the course of weeks, you know, I long for that. That's, that's science, right? That's the best kind of science where you see the truth. It's like seeing the face of God, right? It's why we all show up every day. I'm so glad we got to hear that little anecdote. And that brings us to the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com to give us feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. You know, we're coming through L.A. in a few weeks. We're so excited about that. You guys need to follow up on all our social so you can meet up with, with us there. We're going to get you on the show. We want to hear your insights. We want to hear your experiments. Tell us about your stem cell universe, guys. See you in a couple weeks, and then we'll see you in L.A. Bye.